from WNET in New York, I'm Tom Stewart, and welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who make it all happen. In the spring of 2016, we sat down with the award-winning documentary filmmaker Stanley Nelson, whose highly acclaimed story of the Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution, had just premiered on PBS. You can also find a panel discussion about that film in a previous episode of WNET Up Next. This year, he's bringing to PBS his newest work, Tell Them We Are Rising, which explores the role that historically black colleges and universities have played in American history and culture. Tell Them We Are Rising is one of the hardest films I've ever made because we knew that we had to cover about 170 years of history. HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. We wanted to tell stories about HBCUs from the time of enslavement up until today. Black colleges were redefining what it meant to be black in America. Laws existed that prevented African Americans from learning how to read. Who gonna control our education? Who we gonna let white folks control it or black people? Despite the violence and intimidation, the black colleges survived. Black people were in charge. If you come here, you will find something you won't find anyplace else. Tell them we are rising. Tell Them We Are Rising premieres on PBS on the Independent Lens series on Monday, February 19th, and will be available for streaming the next day. We had the opportunity to learn a lot from Stanley about his journey as a filmmaker. Here's that interview. It's my honor to welcome the multiple Peabody Award winner, Emmy Award winner, and recipient of the MacArthur Foundation's grant, not to mention recipient of the National Humanities Medal, Mr. Stanley Nelson. Stanley. Thanks so much for joining us here on WNET Up Next. Thanks so much for having me. So first of all, how did it really all begin for you? What drew you to this field? I was bouncing around college. This was in the uh, early 70s, and I was just bouncing around. I knew at that point that if I stayed in college, I, I wouldn't have to go to Vietnam. And I was just taking classes, kind of like randomly taking classes. Mm -hmm. I kind of had no major. Was this here in New York? Yeah, I was at City College in, in New York at CCNY, and I, I took a film class, and I really liked it. I said, wow, this is great. And, and, you know, it was kind of a class where, you know, you'd watch films and then maybe have to write a little paper about the films. But I was like, wow, all I have to do is write one little paper and, and see films. This is great. And, and then I took a production class, and I, and I just kind of, I really liked it. I was the guy that didn't mind staying up till 1 or 2 in the morning editing films or, you know, would go out on anybody's shoot. Anybody's going out to shoot, I'm, I'm there with you. And so I realized that it was something that I could major in and get out of college by doing. So what was your first professional experience after that? My first professional experience, I, I believe, was I worked uh, for Bill Greaves, William Greaves, who's like the dean of African-American documentary filmmakers. And I was knocking on doors, and I happened to wander into his office. And through a government program at that time called CETA, the government paid me for a while to kind of be an apprentice mm -hmm. with William Greaves, and that's how I started. A lot of his work was on public television, I believe. And, yeah, and yeah, Bill did a lot of work for, for public television. He also did a lot of work for the government because he was a certified government contractor, and he might have been the only African-American, maybe the only minority in the country who had that status, so we did a lot of work for the government. Did he really become a mentor for you, in a sense, in that way, or...? Yeah, but even more. I mean, I worked for him professionally, so I started out as kind of an assistant editor, and then the editor quit after, you know, some months, and Bill said, okay, well, you just finished the film. 
And wow. so then I became an editor. And then we, he was going out on a shoot, and he said to me, I'll never forget, we were driving in his car. And he said, oh, yeah, Stanley, you're going to go with us to Atlanta, and you're going to do sound. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, you know, I don't know anything about doing it. I've never done sound before. And he said, well, you took sound in college, didn't you? In film school, you took sound. And I said, yeah. He said, okay, we'll go down to the rental place and go see Joe, somebody or other, and he'll check you out on the equipment because you're doing sound. And so then I started doing sound for him. I got to do a whole a n- number of things for Bill and, and really kind of get my feet wet. And how about getting out on your own? In some ways, the, one of the biggest role models that William Greaves had for me was that he had his own company. He had an office. He had a company. Uh, he was supporting his family by making films, and he was making independent films. So I saw that model, and and so I said, well, I have to have my own film that I want to do. My grandfather had been a partner of a woman named Madam C.J. Walker. She had a cosmetic company, one of the biggest cosmetic companies in African-American history. And so I said, well, why don't I do a film about her? So I wrote a little proposal, and over the course of seven years, I made this film about uh, Madam C.J. Walker. And I can remember that very well because we presented it right here on, on Channel 13. You did. I'm always very curious to know what really happens and what it takes to make a documentary film. You know, you talked about films taking seven years. Could you take us through the process, maybe using the Black Panthers, from the idea to the completion? First, of course, you have your subject that you're going to focus on. But after that, what happens? So I'd thought about doing a film on the Black Panthers for a long time because I was a young teenager when the Panthers came into being. I was living here in New York. And the Panthers were just fascinating to me. So I had always thought about making a film about the Panthers. A friend of mine, another filmmaker named St. Clair Bourne, had been working on a film for years on the Panthers, and he kind of suddenly and tragically passed away. And so after a while, after his death, I felt like, okay, well, there's a place for me now to make this film. So I picked up the idea of making a film on the Panthers. One of the first things I do is to look and see what's out there. That's kind of the first step. At the same time, I'm trying to write a proposal. What is this film going to look like? I'm looking also for who's around. Who am I going to interview? Are there still people to interview? With the Panthers, we didn't really have to do a lot of investigation about whether there was footage and stills because we knew there were. The Panthers were such so kind of media darlings during that era that we knew there was footage and there were stills. We found out. Once we got into it, there was much more than we could have imagined. Did you have difficulty getting participants, getting Black Panther members to speak with you and sit for interviews? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In a word, yes. I mean, you know, it was one of the, the hardest things for us to do because so many of the former members of the Panthers have been burnt by the media or they don't trust the media or they have post-traumatic stress from that time. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people might not want to be interviewed. I think one of the only good things about it taking us seven years to make this film, one of the only good things is that we were able to come back after a year to people and after mm-hmm. two years and after people three get years. softened up after yeah, a while. Yeah, and the person that said no way the first year might say uh, no. The second year might say uh, maybe. The third year might say, well, okay, the fourth year. So one of the things that happened over time was that we did soften people up and that we were able to get people to agree to be filmed. What are some of the other challenges that you have in that production process? What are some of the bumps in the road? Well, I mean, the road is one big bump. <laughs> it's like, you know, I wish I could say there were a bunch of little bumps. I mean, the whole thing is just, you know, it's, it's a minefield. 
I think one of the biggest decisions that we made in this film and in a bunch of others that we've made recently was to try to make the film without narration. Mm-hmm. You know, that becomes its own problem. It just is, is not simple, especially to tell a historical story where you have to know where you are in time. You have to know where you are in space. You have to know all these things. So you find um, other, other filmic ways to establish those things. Yeah, yeah. And one of the great things we were able to do in the Panthers is I don't think there's any cards in the film. You know, it's not like four years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's, there's a couple of, like, dates that we kind of super over so you just, just know the date. But that's it. So that's always a, a great difficulty. And then how are you going to tell the story? How are you going to cut this story down to, I mean, two hours is a long film, but you're talking about seven or eight years. And how do you cut that down to make it a manageable story that also has a through line, mm-hmm. a forward w- momentum that doesn't just seem like a, a series of vignettes, but how do you tell a story? And that's not something you come up with an outline on day one of where it's going to go. Well, you do, but you throw that out at okay. some point. Right. You know, you do have an outline, but I would say that probably the final film would be... 80% different from the outline. So the films take you in directions you hadn't originally thought about when you were starting it out? Yeah, yeah. I think people, when you're talking to people, you're doing interviews, they take you into different directions. So the Black Panther film starts out with the story of the blind man and the elephant, you know, and one guy touches the trunk and says it's a snake, and another guy touches the the tusk and says it's a spear, and so on. That's how the film begins, with some animation And that was nowhere in our minds. We were interviewing Erica Huggins, and she told us that story and said the Black Panthers are like that story. You can never kind of grasp the whole story because you can only know the part of it you were in. So she told us that story out of the blue, and we took it and ran with it. That becomes sort of the organizing principle for what you're doing. Right, right. And we had no idea, to our great benefit, or the geniuses that we were, that we kind of (laughs) recognized it, and said, okay, let's run with this. Let's take this story. Let's animate it. Let's start with this. Because in some ways, it lets us off the hook. It says, okay, you know, there's no way we can tell you everything. It's not the ultimate. There uh, is no everything. Definitive. Yeah, yeah. There is not that. There's, You know, you only can see pieces of this thing. And we're going to show you the pieces. We're going to show you pieces, and then you put the story together. What kinds of things did you learn along the way that you didn't really know about? I learned so much about the Panthers. Some of the things that are just striking in the film are that the Panthers were majority women by the late 60s. The Panthers were majority women. That's not how we think of the Panthers. We think of the Panthers as these men looking angry. I think that the Panthers had so much white participation in what they were doing and, and, you know, people coming to see their speeches that they weren't this kind of separate group. They were part of a lot of things that were going on there. J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI not only were central in destroying the Panthers, but documented it. I think that's really important. And I hadn't realized that they had really documented their role. And also that the Panthers were so young. That's something that comes through clearly in the film, that these were basically teenagers. Yeah, but the sense of uh, revolutions are, are started by young people. Always. Now, when the film was completed, you premiered at Sundance, and since then... Uh, prior to it airing on television, you've been all around the country with with this film, with screenings and showcases and that process. I know that comes to part of the community engagement that you do. Right. Well, I think that the Panther film for us was a little bit different from other films because 
we had a real theatrical release for the film. So after Sundance, we did a bunch of festivals. Typically, a director of the film might go to festivals, you know, five, six, ten, who knows, festivals with the film. But what, what we did with the Panthers that was different was we were released in theaters, and that started with um, the Film Forum okay. here in, in New York in the Village. So Film Forum had the film for two weeks. Every night for the 7 o'clock show, I would go. Mm-hmm. Every night for two, for two weeks, I went to the Film Forum for the 7 o'clock show and spoke, and we would bring in guests, Black Panthers, some of the lawyers for the Panthers, people who were involved in uh, Black Lives Matter or Million Hoodies and, and other groups would come in and speak after the film. We would advertise that, that we were going to have speakers. We would also have partner groups. So the part- WNET was one of your yeah, partners. WNET yeah, WNET was, was a partner, and WNET would send out the information that they were going to be a partner that night, so they would come. And that really, I think, was instrumental to the success and the launching of the film. Because people turn out, you know, it, it's sometimes it's kind of strange to me, that, but people really want to see the director of the film and want to talk about the film and have a chance to engage you know, with the film. So every night, every single night, I would be there. We would talk after the film. I would stand out in the lobby and talk <laughs> until everybody was gone. But we would constantly say, you know, look, we don't have a lot of money, but tell people, let people know. And it kind of helps the film to take off. Spread the word. You know, I realized also that you actually started a Kickstarter campaign. And I was sort of surprised because I'm thinking, oh, they're beyond that. They've got funding from everywhere. But t- t- tell me how that worked. We raised the money to make the film. Well, once the film was made and we decided to do a theatrical run, PBS decided that they were going to help. But they had limited funds. I mean, they were very, very generous. But we felt that, you know, with more money, we could do more things. We decided to have our first Kickstarter. And this was just for the theatrical release. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we had a month. I think our goal was $50,000, and we raised $63,000, which was great. And it was really helpful because after the first two weeks at Film Forum, we then went out to city by city by city across the country. So we, you know, we next week we would go to L.A., then the next week we it's would like go to show. Boston, then the next week we would go road. to Chicago, then the next week we would go to Philly and Washington and Baltimore, oh. all over the country. And every Friday and mostly Saturday, too, I would be there. So some of the money went to fly me around and get me to these different cities. What it does is that opening night, that Friday and that Saturday, you fill the theater. Mm-hmm. And now you've got buzz. you got all those people. They can tell all their friends. And now you've got buzz for the film. And you can also go to these cities and do local press. You go to Boston and do local press. You go to Chicago and do local press. Like that, all over the country. And that's what we did. But also we found that Kickstarter really does something else. It works as a kind of publicity tool. The people who contribute to Kickstarter are now part of the film and they feel like that they're mm-hmm. they're supporters of your film and they're telling friends and they're now tweeting about it and sending emails you know they're part of it they put some money into this so they want to see it be a success it's like another whole community yeah banking. yeah and so we had 990 contributors and so you have all those ambassadors who are now helping to get the word of the film out there That's great. Very impressive. I know you've had a long-time partnership with uh, public media, many of your films. For example, your Freedom Riders film was an American Experience film. The Black Panthers came under the independent lens umbrella. How do those processes work, and how do you determine who to approach to manage that? I had a long history with American Experience. What happened was I did the film $2 and a Dream about Madam C.J. Walker, which was a very independent film. So afterwards, because it was a history film, my name was on their map. And so 
We started talking about possible films. I said, I'd love to do a film about Marcus Garvey and the Marcus Garvey movement. And that's where we came up with that idea. After that, we did a number of films. And, you know, they were very successful for them and for, you know, me too. So, you know, The Murder of Emmett Till and Jonestown and Freedom Riders and Freedom Summer all came through American Experience because I was now a filmmaker that they knew. That's a big deal in this industry. The people know you, they know you can deliver, but then they also know that they can work with you. Yes. After Freedom Riders, we kind of felt that it would be great to experiment and go out on our own and do some films. So we kind of reached an agreement with PBS, CPB, and ITVS, mm -hmm. all parts of, of PBS, to do a very loosely related three-part series called America Revisited. Yes. And that's the Black Panthers' vanguard of the revolution, Tell Them We Are Rising, a film about historic black colleges and universities, and then a huge project that's slated to be four hours on the Atlantic slave trade. You know, what I haven't really touched on is the incredible response that this film has gotten. What is that like for you? You've gotten brilliant reviews, and in terms of public broadcasting, huge rating numbers. How gratifying is that? The most gratifying thing for us right now and the thing we, we really want to run with is the rating numbers and how that was done. Because, we, you know, we set an, a record for PBS for tweets. The Black Panthers uh, trended number one worldwide for five hours straight at the time of the broadcast. It was just this incredible thing. And part of what we said when we started this three-picture series, mm -hmm. uh, America Revisited, was that we felt that you could bring a diverse audience to PBS. We thought you could bring a younger audience to PBS. We thought you had to reach out to them in different ways and you had to try to tackle them and bring them in in different ways. And we thought that the Panthers was the perfect film to do that. That's why we came out with that one first. Because, mm -hmm. you know, look, the Panthers are sexy. Everybody, you know, it's like the Black Panthers. So that was really important to us. And we went after that in certain ways. From the Kickstarter campaign, we had certain partners. These were people that helped us with Kickstarter who had 100,000 followers, or Wendell Pierce, who, mm -hmm. who has just been a great friend of ours, who has 80,000 followers. Who knew? And he said, okay, I'll help you with your Kickstarter. So now he's on board. All his followers are on board. That night, just to watch these tweets, 200-something thousand, we're like, oh, my God. But we think that there are new ways to reach audiences. I have a 26-year-old daughter and 17-year-old twins, and the way they consume media is just very different. How do they find out about media? Because they are, what do they call it? They say it's platform agnostic. Okay. They don't care. They don't know what they're watching. They don't care what they're watching. You know, just as long as they want to see it. They don't care if it's PBS, if it's HBO, if right, it's if Showtime, it's if it's iPad or, or iTime. They yeah. don't care. It's just something that, that for whatever reason, somebody said, you should watch this. And it's not the ads in the papers that cost $20,000. It's not the reviews for them. Mm -hmm. It's a different way. You get some of these people to tweet. We had John Legend we had Quest Love, <laughs> Solange, Beyonce's sister tweeted, Carrie Washington tweeted, then Bette Midler <laughs> somehow was watching right. the film and tweeted. And that brings in all these different people from all these different places. You can put an ad in, you know, a big magazine and it can cost you a huge amount of money. Or you can have people tweet and 
who's going to reach the most people? Who's going to reach more? You know, or more involved, yeah. more personal. There's yeah. a personal sense in that in right. those things. Yeah. So how soon do we see the black colleges and universities? Soon? I want to say whenever we're at seven years. Not seven, <laughs> no, not seven years. No, 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 no. We have the money. Okay. So we're looking to finish in November or so, and then it's up to PBS and ITVS and the broadcasters of when it will actually air. One lesson that we learned though from the Panthers that's really interesting is that the more time you have from the time you finish the film to when it airs, in some way, the better. Now, it's very frustrating for a filmmaker to realize that and to have to deal with it because you finish the film, you want to get it out there. Mm. But in real terms, if you don't have zillions of dollars, the more time you have, the better off you can be in reaching an audience. Because you can create that buzz. Right. Right. There's so many different things you can do. I know your company is called Firelight Films, based in Harlem. I've read that it's a very unique player in the documentary world because of some of the things that you have there. Something called the Producers Lab for young producers, also the community engagement. Can you tell us more about how those are part of what your work is about? Sure. I should say that we have two different divisions. One is Firelight Films, which we've been talking about up till now, which really is the for-profit organization that makes the films. And so that's Firelight Films, and that's pretty much what we do. You know, we make films. And then there's another part, a nonprofit called Firelight Media. And Firelight Media does two things. It runs what's called the Documentary Lab. It used to be called the Producers Lab. Now it's called the Documentary Lab. And we also do audience engagement. The Documentary Lab is a program where we work with diverse producers. We have 20 at any one time of diverse producers who are underrepresented all over the media. And we work to get their films made and done and on the air. Mm -hmm. We work as a mentorship organization. We mentor people and try to get their films out there. We've been hugely successful. It's like a whole new spreading of this uh, documentary ideal of yours. I think that one of the ways that we came up with this idea was because so many of the programs that existed when I was coming up, I mentioned CETA that Mm -hmm. paid for me to work with Bill Greaves for a few months. Those programs don't exist. So much of that doesn't exist. And so how do we get new blood? How do we get new ideas, new people into the system? And that's what we're trying to do with the Producers Lab. And it's been successful. I think it's been successful for two reasons. We had two things that we kind of went into this hoping were true. One was that we could raise money and funding to do it, and we've been able to do that so far. But two, that there were diverse filmmakers out there that had great projects and just needed a little bit of help to get these films made. And that's proven to be really true. If I'm listening to this podcast and I want to know more about your work and about the Black Panthers film and all of your work, where do I go? Our website, if you want more information about the lab and the other work that we do, is at firelightmedia.org. I think it's info at firelightmedia.org. You can find out more information about the lab, about films that we've done in the past and, and what we're doing now. Stanley Nelson, thanks so much for being here with us today. That's and, my uh, pleasure. All the best of luck and everything in the future. Thanks. You've been listening to a conversation with filmmaker Stanley Nelson, which we recorded at the time of the original PBS broadcast of his award-winning film, The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. His newest film, Tell Them We Are Rising, the story of historically black colleges and universities, premiered at the Sundance Festival in the fall of 2017 and is now being broadcast on PBS as part of the Independent Lens series. For more information about the film and Stanley's career, log on to 
hbcurising.com. And join us again soon for another edition of WNET Up Next. Share your questions and comments with us at upnext at wnet.org. And of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart. Thanks for listening. Thank you.